The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. And it was really, it was neat to hear some reactions as we started this last, last week. Um, I know that, that some of you may have grown up um, reciting the Apostles' Creed every week or regularly in your churches. Uh, many of you have never even heard of it, never even knew what was in it. And we reminded you that it's, this is beneficial uh, for, for both kinds of people, those who are familiar, those who are unfamiliar with it. Uh, and the point of a creed and any creed is to point to something that flows from the heart and it overflows as a confession. This is what I believe and it comes from my heart. Remember, we talked about the echo of the Apostles' Creed. The echo, uh, what it is, is it's as an echo. No one shouts into a hillside or into a canyon, hears the voice come back and think that the mountains are speaking to them. But rather the echo points to something, points to something of substance, to where, where the authority is. And so the Apostles' Creed uh, points to, it's an echo, it points to God's word. It's his voice, God's word that tells us uh, who God is, what he has done, who we are, and how we are to honor him and live for him. Uh, we began with the nature of believing, just what it means to believe, that all belief starts in the heart, it overflows into a life and how we live. Therefore, it's been said that what comes to the mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. What we believe in our hearts about God will influence how we live in every facet of our lives. Last week, we only got two words deep. We will speed up, I promise, through the creed. Last week, we got two words deep where we said, I believe. We talked about the nature of belief. Today, we move further to cover the first line of that creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. The Apostles' Creed begins with this affirmation, I believe in God the Father. There's an interesting story about one of the most famous American uh, preachers, Jonathan Edwards, in the 1700s, and he talked a lot with people in his hometown, uh, in his church, and leaders in Massachusetts, and about spreading the gospel, and to start revivals, and to pray for revival. And people in his church said, why is this important? Everyone believes in God. Almost everyone we know believes in God. To which he said, yes, but what kind of God do they believe in? When I opened up the Bible and showed them the God of the Bible, most people would say, yeah, that's not the God that I believe in. And the same may be true today. More than than eight out of ten people, if they were asked, when they are asked, say that they believe in God. But when you show them the God of the Bible, only about half of Americans believe uh, in the God of the Bible. And then, even from then, only a fourth of those Uh, people who believe in the God of the Bible, believe that God is actively involved in his creation, governing, sustaining, directing the course of history by his sovereign power. So today, many people believe in God, but there are almost as many definitions of God as there are people who confess belief in him. The Bible tells us that God is knowable, that he is intimately involved in his creation, Uh, that he is powerful, that he has a true and objective character that we can know and and, and learn from and trust in. We, We learn that God doesn't change. We learn that God is our Father. What does that mean for us? What does that mean to us? We said last week that the number one indicator that a person really is interested in knowing God more is that they are interested in what God says about himself. And so as we go to God's word, we ask the question, God, who do you say that you are? 
so that I can know who you are and trust in you and worship you. So if we want to know who he is, we must know him as he's truly been made known to us. So let's go to God's word this morning. And as we reflect on this line in the creed, we want to read from Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 25. These are Jesus' words to us. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of these, sorry, the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Today we look at God's identity and function and the relationship that God has to his creation, to all of his creation. And here is what we will see, that this relationship that God has to his creation, it is rooted in, his, in, in all of eternity. His relationship is rooted deeply in eternity. His relationship is sustained by his almighty power and his relationship is secure in his grace. And so we look at these three. Let's look first at this relationship that is rooted in eternity. God is revealed in Scripture as, as Father, eternal Father. It's one of the most commonly uh, understood attributes of God. When we think of God, you don't need to know much about God, but you probably know that God has been called Father, our Father in heaven. Father is not just a title, but it's a function of His being. It's a function of His relationship to Creation. I get a question asked a lot, um, like many of you do. Uh, people say, well, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And most often, the next question that they ask is, why would you do that? No, that's not the question. They say, they say oh, what's the name of your church? Or where does your church meet? Or they want to know something about the church that I pastor. And, and it would be odd if I said, oh, pastor is more of a term of endearment. More than anything, I just love the way Pastor Pete sounds to my ears. But I don't really function as a pastor in any way. Or if someone were to ask you, um, what do you do? And you say, I'm, a, I'm an engineer. And they say, oh, what kind of engineer? Well, engineer is more of a, like a life phrase that I go by. It's not so much what I engineer, rather what is engineering me? And you're like, this person is crazy. This person's not an engineer. God is Father. God is our Father. It's not just a term of endearment. It's not something, it's not a title that, that God has been given or given to himself or that we give uh, to, to speak to uh, his 
anything but his identity and function of who he is in relationship to the world. It designates his relationship, his relationship to what and to whom? That's the question. To everything and everyone. You and I and everything that exists, the Bible tells us, has our origin in God. Everything seen and unseen. He's the source. He is the origin. He is the, the wellspring of life. The Father of all that exists. He is the God who creates. He is the God who sustains. He is the God who, who governs it all. The Apostles' Creed begins where the Bible begins in Genesis 1 with the first words of, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And it's likely that we come to the creed or any spiritually themed text or book or sermon uh, or blog post or article with, with the similar desire and motivation. We come to this saying, okay, I, I want to grow. I want to get better. I want to learn. And those are not bad motivations in themselves. We likely want to know God. We, wanna, we likely go to these things because we want to make our lives better. And the creed and the Bible both remind us that that's not the best place to start. Okay, God, I'm, I'm ready to, to turn over a new leaf. I'm ready to start a new chapter in my life. I'm ready to right a wrong behavior. And so we go to the Bible and we are reminded, oh, wait a minute. This isn't primarily about me. From the first words in the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the creed starts in the same way to remind us that it's not primarily about us, that we are not at the center of the universe, that we are not the hero of the story. The creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I have my existence because I was created by a God who cares. That we were reminded, oh yeah, if I want to learn about me, I must learn first about the God who created me and the God who cares deeply about me. What Matthew 6 aims to do is one thing primarily, and that is to reverse the order, the order of which we seek to make sense of the world. We tend to make sense of the world by our observation of it. We look at the world and what is happening to us and happening around us, and we try to make sense of our lives based on what is happening to us externally. But Jesus wants us to see something else. He wants us to see a God who has established himself over all of creation from eternity as great king and Lord and creator over all things without any limits of any kind whatsoever. And then to see our world and our circumstances through that truth. From the perspective and through the lens that God is eternal, constant, unchanging, from, which, from whom everything gets their being and purpose. In the beginning, there was God and nothing else. This is really hard to imagine. It's difficult to imagine. No stars, no sky, no light, no dust, no air. You and I can imagine a world that is empty, but I don't know if we can imagine in our brains a world that doesn't exist. We imagine a warehouse or a room that doesn't have anything in it, and we imagine that's the world. But even in that room that is empty, there is, there's air, there are molecules, there are dust particles, there's still space and dimension. 
Imagine a world that doesn't exist, but God was there. God was there. He has always been God. He is revealed to us as the personal source of all that is. The God who himself has no beginning and no end brings everything into existence. This is the God of the Bible. He reveals himself in this way. And this relationship is not only rooted in eternity, the relationship that he has with you and I, it is, it is one that not just drops into our laps. It does not begin uh, when we are created. It actually is rooted in eternity. But it's also sustained by God's power. Let's turn now to the next one, that this relationship that God as creator has with his, his creation, is, it's a relationship that's sustained by his power. God's level of involvement in the world has become a, a controversy among people and Christians and churches everywhere. How involved in creation is God? How involved is he in salvation? And, what, and to what degree is he involved in the normal affairs of our life? How does God impose himself in the midst of tragedy, or does he care at all? And when the, when the creed confesses and when the Bible proclaims, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It is calling attention to the fact that God is infinitely powerful and intimately involved in his creation to such a degree that everything and everyone owes their every moment and movement to the active hand of God in our lives. It means that God will do everything he intends to do and nothing will get in the way of that. Because the Bible does not say that God is mighty. The creed does not tell us that God is mighty. It tells us that He is almighty, that He is all-powerful, that He is omnipotent. And where this is a topic of controversy among Christians, well, how powerful, how involved, how sovereign, it is never a topic of controversy in the Scriptures. It is always a topic of worship. Look at how awesome God is. Look at how mighty. Look at how sovereign. Look at how, how nothing gets in his way. Look how he brings to pass everything that he has promised to come to pass, and he is able to make that promise because nothing is more powerful than God. There's no argument of script, in Scripture of, well, how it's up to uh, degrees of sovereignty. It is always a matter of worship that God is sovereign, that God is king, that God is Lord, that God is almighty. Jesus calls our attention in Matthew 6 to how God relates to the world. He relates to, he relates to the world as one who created it and one that sustains all creation by his love, power, patience, and generosity. To confess, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, is meant in part to correct the image that we have in our mind that God at creation winds up creation like a toy or like a clock and that he sets it out to run its course with no intimate or personal involvement. Indeed, we see God intimately involved. Jesus points us to the intimate, careful, loving involvement between God the Father and his children whom he created. Think about power. This is an interesting thing as we think of almighty God with cosmic power. Power is an interesting thing. Power no longer, or I don't know when it happened or if it ever was something like, power no longer is a, a nice or comforting word. 
When I think of power, I don't think of love. I don't think of safety. I don't think of of, uh, generosity and patience. Power has become a sinister word, I think, in our culture. And something many of us are skeptical of. Well, how are they going to use that power? To what degree should they be given power? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So we are skeptical of people be giving power. We have checks and balances on power because power is abused and we see the rampant abuse that happens in any, any kind of, uh, any area of society. The power can corrupt and absolute power can corrupt absolutely. So power tends to bring with it feelings of insecurity and fear or even rebellion. We say, well, if you are going to impose your power, then I'm going to rebel and do my own thing. But I want us to think about the power of God in a different light as it's revealed to us in Scripture. That is not how might and power and God's ultimate might and power is understood in Christian teaching. Think of the word that the Jewish people were given of God and called God. They called him El Shaddai. Maybe that's a word familiar to you. Maybe you have become familiar with that word through your studies. Maybe you just like Amy Grant. And uh, that's what, you know, in the 1980s, you're like, I know what El Shaddai is. Yeah, Amy Grant. Don't know what it means, but I know the song. El Shaddai, what does El Shaddai mean? It's a combination of two meanings. It means the one who is sufficient and the one who overpowers. It's not likely that we would put both of those meanings together in one word. They seem like two separate things. You could either be sufficient and loving and kind and patient and generous and or you could be powerful, that, the one that kind, of, that kind of oppresses, one that sustains my enemies, but one that is harsh with me. God gave his people a name to call himself, one that is all sufficient to all of their needs, and also one who overpowers, one who is strong, yet generous, one, one who, who is never thwarted in his plans, yet patient. He meets all of our needs primarily because He is all-powerful. A God who is not all-powerful can never make good on the promise to say, I will always take care of you. Well, how could you promise that you'll always take care of me if you are not all-powerful? Because someone can come in and block and ruin your plans. But God is able to say, I will take care of your needs and all of your needs, and everything I have promised to you as my child whom I love will come to pass because I am capable of bringing it to pass, because no one is more powerful than me. Do you see God's power and might in that light? It is a good thing for us that God is almighty. We confess him to be God almighty, and it's something we are not afraid of. It's something that brings us great comfort God's power is not a power that manipulates, it's not a power that controls, but a power that frees us and provides for us as a good father. It is a power that enables God to accomplish all that he has promised to us, and nothing will get in the way of his good purpose for us. So all of this theology, what is the point? So you recite the creed, so you are learning theology, so you now have this understanding that God is Father, that He is Creator of all heavens and earth, and that He is powerful. It's not merely to give you information. 
God is not just giving you information. Hey, I want you to know who I am. God is creator and he is powerful. We're meant to internalize these truths. We're meant to let them sink sink deep into our hearts and into our minds. I want you to think about this and say to yourself, rehearse it to yourself. I am created and I am cared for and nothing gets in the way of God's plan for me. Can you utter those words? Do you believe that sentence? That there's a God before there were anything was, He was. There is a God who is and in His being He is perfect and mighty and there is no one more powerful than Him and He created me and every breath that I have has been given to me by Him and He cares for me and He watches over me and He loves me and He will never give up on me. To say this phrase, I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, is to say something deeply intimate about the God who is greater than anything. You are created, you are cared for, and nothing gets in the way of God's plan for you. Can you say that? Can you embrace that? Good theology, more than anything, is meant to move us to trust God It's meant to move us from a place of just intellectual knowledge and it's meant to move us to trust Him, to cast our cares on Him, to move in relationship of rest to Him. Because God created everything out of nothing, because He still sustains His creation and our lives by His almighty provision and power. This is what Jesus wants us to know. It's what He presses in in Matthew 6. He wants us to understand that God knows our needs. Here he validates our desires. I appreciate this. Because some would take this teaching and other teachings in Scripture and say, don't worry about these things. Don't think about these things. You're thinking about the wrong things and you shouldn't care about these things. But I love how Jesus doesn't say, you care about money, don't care about money. He says, you care about money, you care about what you'll wear, you care about your life, you care about what you'll eat. Those things are important. He validates them. He doesn't say, don't care so much about these things. Don't care about your life. Don't care about your anxious thoughts. He says, I understand that you care about those things, and I care about those things, but don't put those things where I should be in your life. Don't put those things as ultimate pursuits in your life. Your Father knows that you need them. This is interesting. He doesn't say at this point that he'll give them. Jesus doesn't say, and here's how God will go about giving you those things. He says he knows that you need them. But look at what Jesus tells us about our Heavenly Father. He knows. He cares. In fact, you are more valuable than any of God's creation. You are more valuable to him than the angels. You are more valuable to him than than anything he has created, seen or unseen. You are the crown of his creation. There's none like you. There's no creation that is a greater object of God's affection than you. He knows you. He he cares for you. He is able. He says, I am able to sustain and, and feed the birds of the air. He clothes the flower. He says, look how beautiful the flowers are. No one, no one on earth is clothed in in as beautiful attire as the flowers of the field. 
And, and, and I did that. And I care more about you than I do the flowers. Look at the birds. They have everything they need. They, 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 they make their home. They get their food. And I care about you more than them. So he, deser- he, assure- he desires to assure us of one final thing. More than giving us things, God desires to give us himself. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added to you. Every desire, every thing, every feeling and wish and hope should be subordinate to the desire to find ourselves knowing God and his intimate love for us. God desires above all things. I want to I give you myself so that in giving you myself, you would rest in that relationship. You would find peace in that relationship. That in the midst of all the things going on in your life, in all of the grieving and all of the wanting and all of the needing, you would have a, have a stable foundation knowing that I'm not giving up on you. How does it happen? How does that happen where we get to that place? Let's look at the final point. It happens through knowing that our relationship with God is not only sustained through His power, but it's secure in His grace. It's a relationship secure in His grace. The Bible talks about God as Father in two different ways. And the first way, we've only been talking about one way that God is Father. The first way that God is Father is that He is the origin of all things, the creator of all things, from which all things have their meaning and purpose. And that way, God is the the Father. He's he's called the Father of Spirit, the Father of lights, the, the Father of all life, meaning all life owes their existence to God, the origin and wellspring of all life. There's another way that the Bible talks about Father, and this is the way that Jesus tells us to see God as our Father, as He Himself sees God as His Father. Jesus, or God was Father. How was God Father, called Father, before anything was in existence? He was Father because He was a Father to a Son. Again, Father is not just a term of endearment. It is a function of His being. He is Father to Jesus who eternally existed in the Godhead, the second person of the Trinity. And in Matthew 6, Jesus puts an important word in front of the name Father. Do you see that word? That word is your. Your Father. Not only was Jesus telling His disciples that He could address His Father as Father, but now we can too. This is not something to take lightly. This is not something to pass over and say, well, that's awesome. Every time we are reminded of God as Father or recite the creed or pray to God with the words, our Father in heaven, we should be reminded of our adoption into God's family and placed in this intimate relationship with God, a relationship that we did not have by the nature of our birth. No one in this sense is born a child of God. Jesus makes it clear that in all senses, All people are children of God as they get their life from Him. But not all people are children of God in the sense that they share with God this intimate relationship as a father to a son, the one that Jesus has with God. And in fact, Jesus taught about this and people wanted to kill Him because He said not all people are children of God. God is not your father he says, to many who do not receive Jesus. Jesus would disagree with the statement, all people are God's children. 
God is Father primarily because He has a Son, Jesus. And in this relationship, they share perfect love, perfect trust, perfect intimacy, perfect care. So how can Jesus tell us that we can have His Father as our Father? And here it is. God is the Father to those who have Jesus as their brother. Jesus says, guess what you can have now. You can relate to my father as your father and share to the same degree of love and security and rest that I do with my father if you are my brother. How do we become Jesus' brother? The sermon, I promise, won't just be a sequence of questions. I promise we're going to get to an answer. And here it is. Jesus says, here's how you become my brother. In John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. And then in John 1, but to all who did receive him, talking about Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus shares a relationship with God the Father based on his eternal glory with him in full grace and truth and love. And Jesus is God's son by his nature. And we become God's children by grace through adoption. When we utter the words, God our Father, we are not simply putting out a theological idea. We are making a confession of the defining relationship of our very lives that influences everything we feel and do that our Father is God Almighty who loves us and cares for us. Jesus tells us that when we receive this scripture, the words that he spoke to us, and that at, the very, at that very moment we believe, we are clothed with his perfect holiness, clothed with his sonship, clothed, clothed with the reward of his perfect obedience as a faithful son, that earns the reward of God the Father, the inheritance and heir of all things. And the Bible tells us that we become heirs with Jesus, not because we earned it, but because Jesus shares it with us. We are clothed in perfect holiness, so that even even as being a believer, even though we are still sinful, he or she, the child of God, is judged by God is blameless. Blameless. Jesus is telling us as we receive this, we become united to Jesus in faith and the good news of life on the cross that he, that he accomplished, we are made children of God, not orphans, but children of God, not ones cut off from the privilege of family, not ones cut off from the privilege of having someone watch over us, care for us, sustain our lives, provide for our needs. This is bigger than you think. If God is always pleased with Jesus as his perfectly faithful son, and you are united to Jesus in faith, 
then you are the recipient of God's unending affection and pleasure forever, always. Amen. There needs to be an amen at the end of that. We are that kind of church. (laughs) We believe this. We are excited about this. We praise God for this because we did not deserve this. Now, there's a couple reasons why this is difficult for us. It's a couple reasons why God, our Father, is not as wonderful to our ears as we imagine. Because we have earthly fathers who do not live up to the promises of provision and love and support and care that we expect. We do not, we are are broken by our earthly fathers. Even though they attempt to do good and have done good, and you as a father try to be a good father, taking your cues and, and imitating God, your father in heaven, but you fall short. And deep down inside, what this does for us is deep down inside, we're convinced that there is a way that we can save ourselves apart from our Father because we have been let down. Maybe we need a little help. Maybe we need Jesus to show us the way. Maybe we need a boost in our holiness. But deep down inside, we believe that if we have the right tools, the right determination, each and every one of us should be able to save ourselves because not one of us are really that far bad or far gone. We've been taught that. We believe that. So the idea of God, our Father, is not as glorious as we have been told. Another reason is deep down inside, we cannot believe that someone would actually love us as much as the Bible says we are loved by our Father in heaven. Why would God give us the rewards and and love and spiritual blessing that we did, not, we did not deserve. Why would Jesus give us all of his hard-earned rewards? Why would anyone do that? No one does that. No one does that. We are born with a conscience that tells us that we are condemned for doing bad. And this is re- reinforced at every context at school, at work, at society, in all forms of civil laws and expectations by our parents and stresses put on us um, by our bosses. We are told that the answer for screwing up is to do better next time. And you as a child know this very well, that the answer to your failures is to do better next time. It's lodged deep into our hearts. And so when the gospel tells us that we are truly loved this much, that God is our father that will never leave us, the friend that will never betray us, the boss that will never ridicule us, the spouse that will never reject us, it comes to us as foolishness to our ears. And we say, that sounds absurd I like it, but it just sounds ridiculous because we don't have a category for the kind of heavenly father love that has been promised to us. We don't have a category for it. Jesus did not come to show us the way of salvation. He came to to be the way of salvation. He came to adopt us into his family, not to hire us as his servants. He came to make us his family. If you really want to know what it means to be a Christian, then Your union with Christ is the core identity for how you live in every area of your life and relationship that shapes everything we do, everything that you do. So when we confess these words, I believe 
and God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It is not just a belief. It is we are casting our lives on the mercy of God and orienting our entire life around our identity as his children that are deeply loved. God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, is your earthly, your heavenly Father by the merits of your brother Jesus who died for you, and you are the object of his eternal affection. It will never go away. Let's pray.